Let's pray and ask for our God to help us. Lord, this morning as we look at this part of your word in Matthew's Gospel, I pray that you'd speak through me, help me to be clear and faithful to what you say. Open my lips to do that. And by your Spirit, open our ears to hear well, our hearts to receive and believe and obey what you say from the heart. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In movies, revenge is a common theme, isn't it? I remember watching many a movie and longing for the bad guy to get what he deserved. I'd be glad when the good guy got even and when justice was done. Revenge comes easy to us, doesn't it? The way of the world is that we pay back favours and we pay back injuries. Someone hits us, we want to hit them back. Growing up with brothers, that's what I wanted. (laughs) That's what we did. (laughs) Even young children. Young children are sort of instinctively conscious of fair play and where their own rights have been infringed. Often we think in terms of our rights, especially what my rights are. Now we should long for justice. Seeking justice is a good thing. Our God is just. The trouble comes when we take matters into our own hands. And so Romans 12 says, Do not take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath. But this, and Jesus' words here in Matthew 5, they are just confronting and challenging for us. So how can I find the strength to love my enemies? In the Sermon on the Mount, we've been considering what true righteousness looks like and how it starts from the heart. Murder has been deepened to anger, adultery to lust, and we always should keep our promises and speak truthfully. And now in what some have called the high point of the sermon, in what's most admired and yet what's most resented by some, we hear this call to deep love. Do you know what? We can't do it. Our first point, when we read this section, if you're anything like me, you'll be convicted of your sin and your shortcomings of all the times that you fall short, all the times that you have gotten even or have hated. I mean, just look at verse 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God is perfect. He alone is the standard of perfection. He's holy And without sin, he is perfectly, completely just, good, loving. And in the context here, perfection especially includes love. God himself is gracious, generous, loving. Am I? Are you? Always? Jesus said the greatest commandments were what? That's to love God with all our hearts, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, and our neighbours as ourselves. And we haven't done it. We often prefer to put ourselves first. None of us are perfect. And sinless 
perfection in this life is beyond us. When the standard and demand is perfect obedience, when one shortfall, one fail, one selfish act means we do fail, then we're in trouble. When the bar, when the hurdle is as high as the moon and we can't jump it or reach it, then we are goners. Even the best of human love is contaminated by self-interest. So I hope that each of us will read this this morning and be moved to confess our sin. Call to love our enemies is impossible. Impossible without the supernatural grace of our God. The Sermon on the Mount ought to convict us of our sin and make us sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are sinners. We are unable to attain God's standards, unable to save ourselves. But there is one who can. There is one who came to save us. You see, Christ did it. Christ was perfect as his heavenly Father is perfect. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did it. He loved his enemies. He lived the perfectly sinless life in our place. And then on that cross, our sins, the penalty for our sins, were it was laid on him, it was placed on him. Verse 24, doesn't it say, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Christ was punished for our sins. He dealt with them for all of us who trust in him. Please trust in him. For if you do, then our sins are forgiven and taken away. And if we trust in Christ, then we also become children of God. His plan was now as his forgiven people, as his children, that we would now die to sins and live for righteousness. In other words, we've been saved to live for God and display God's character. And our God is love. What motivated God to send his son? What motivated Christ to go to the cross? Love. In Matthew 5.44, Jesus commands his hearers to love their enemies. And what's the motivation, the reason for this? It's in verse 45. Literally, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. God loves all people. He shows common grace to all rebellious sinners the world over. He gives good gifts, food, water. In fact, God loves rebellious sinners so much that he gave his only son, didn't he? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And Romans chapter 5 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, 
While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And nowhere is this love for enemies more explicit than in Jesus Christ himself. He was beaten and mocked, struck, spat upon, and did he retaliate? He totally refused to retaliate. He suffered the unjust agony of the cross and he did it for us when we were God's enemies. This Remembrance Day, we remember the many who sacrificed their lives for their family, for their friends. This God here reminds us that our Lord sacrificed himself for his enemies. Look to the cross. There is love. I hope you know that love too. And as we're told in 1 John, in chapter 4, he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So because God has sacrificially loved us, that's why we are to love others. Our God's a loving God, and so we, his people, his children, are to be loving people. If you look at verse 45 of Matthew 5, our love doesn't actually make us children of God, but it gives evidence that we are his children. By your love for others, you don't become a child of God, but you show yourself to be a child of God. You display to all and to your enemy that you are a son, you are a daughter of your Father in heaven. And so I can display my Father's likeness by my graying hair, and it's only going to get worse. But as children of God, we demonstrate our heavenly Father's likeness by our love. Next point, we, we can do it. We can do it. Because God provides the, the power to accomplish what he asks of us. Our love for others won't be perfect in this life, but it will be genuine. So how can I love my enemies? Remembering that I follow Christ's example and by the Spirit of God I can. So remind yourself of Philippians 4 and verse 13, that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That, that you can do everything through the Lord who strengthens you, brothers and sisters. By God's grace, we can begin to show God's likeness more and more, becoming more and more like Jesus. So with the Spirit of God, and because of the love of God, we can. We're going to look at verse 43 on, and then we'll come back to verse 38. So loving, loving. Verse 43, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We read earlier in Leviticus 19, verse 18, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. 
some Jewish teachers of the law had limited neighbor to fellow God-fearing Jews. And they had narrowly defined neighbor as fellow Jew and they'd excluded others. And it was not the Old Testament that taught hate your enemy. It was uh, the teachers of the law. You see, they wanted to limit love. This live issue of how neighbor is to be defined prompted Jesus to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure you know it from Luke chapter 10. Remember how was the despised outsider Samaritan who loved the Jew beaten on the side of the road when all the religious people walked on by? And Jesus teaches that that your neighbor is anyone you come across who is in need. Your neighbor is any human being that you are in a position to help. Here, Jesus, again, he fills up the law by extending its demands. The Pharisees want to restrict their love. Jesus extends it. Jesus says, don't just love those who love you. Even unbelievers do that. No, love even your enemies and those who persecute you. The word for love here, agape, it describes giving yourself for the good of another, whether or not they deserve it. And this agape love, it may involve emotion, but it must involve action. And when we do this, won't we stand out as salt and light? When we even love our enemies, when no one else around us does, won't we then demonstrate that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world? In Luke's gospel, Jesus says our love for enemies should be expressed in deeds and words and prayers. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Deeds, words, prayers. Riyadh was a Muslim imam, a man who called people to prayer at four mosques. He taught nearly 1,500 people the Quran, but his one overall task was to rid his town of Christians and to do his utmost to destroy the Christian church in his land. He would collect arms and use the money to purchase supplies for making bombs. He would secretly lead raids on churches and homes, either burning them, bombing them, or vandalizing and intimidating. The Muslim authorities did nothing, turning a blind eye to it all. The only people who did something were the Christians, his victims. And what did they do? They prayed for him. They organized prayer campaigns. They held all-night prayer meetings asking God to change Riyadh's heart or remove him from the area. They made no secret of this. Riyadh couldn't believe it. He said, while I was burning, destroying and killing against Christians, they were praying for me. I would hear them openly praying along the road. Please call this man into your kingdom. And Riyadh said, Ah, these people are crazy. I'm going to destroy them all again and again. Why are they praying for me? Instead of defending themselves or casting curses on me, they bless me. Then one day Riyadh met some Christians who asked him to study the Quran with them. 
he thought that he'd teach them. But they talked about Abraham, Noah, Moses, and also about Jesus. And gradually, over a period of time, he began to change, and his friends helped Riyadh to bridge from the Quran to the Bible, and he turned his life over to Jesus Christ. Now he began suffering for Christ. And Riyadh says to others, never hate Muslims. Love them. Pray for them. Demonstrate compassion and serve them. Share the gospel with them. Always remember that Muslims are in darkness. This is inspiring. But usually... Our enemies don't threaten our lives. Often they are just ordinary people who are mean, impatient, judgmental, spiteful, anti-Christian. And in whatever personal relationships we have, God wants us to love. Whether it's conflict with a spouse, with our children or with your parents, with friends, others at church, whether it's the devious business opponent, the spiteful neighbour next door or a stranger, our attitude to them should always be one of prayerful love. And our love for God and for them will be seen in us enduring, not retaliating. The words I for an eye are still famous, aren't they? Verse 38. One of the three places that's quoted in the Old Testament was read for us earlier in Leviticus 24, verse 19. If anyone injures his neighbour, whatever has been, he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so he is to be injured. Two things must be remembered about this. First, however, prescriptive, It may have been. It was also restrictive and helpful for eliminating blood feuds and tribal warfare. So suppose someone cuts off your brother's hand and you go and knock the guy's head off. What's going to happen? Immediately that the violence has escalated, the man's family may feel honour bound to kill not only you but all of your family. Where will it end? But if... Instead, the initial act of violence is met with a punishment that fits the crime, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, then that's the end of the matter. Secondly, remember that the law was given to the Jewish people as a nation. The law was not to be discharged by people who are individuals, who are swept up, in personal vendettas and who are taking the law into their own hands, was meant to be acted on by elders and judges and courts. But in Jesus' day, Jews were using this scripture to justify getting even, taking others to courts, and all this fostered bitterness, vengeance, malice, hatred. I think things haven't changed. Jesus responds with sweeping authority, but I tell you, 
Do not resist an evil person. Tolstoy said that this means we should have no soldiers, no policemen or magistrates because they all resist evil people. This passage is not asserting global pacifism or abolishing police forces or the wrongs of war. He's not talking about the responsibilities of governments at all. The Bible says that the state, the government, ought to punish the wrongdoer. Jesus is talking about personal, private retaliation, not public order. He's addressing the so-and-so cheated me, hurt me, so just wait till I get even. Jesus gives four examples, four illustrations of enduring love. He says, firstly, firstly, verse 39, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. Famous words. This striking could refer to any hit or, or slap. But since Jesus mentions the right cheek, he's probably referring to the, the, a backhanded slap towards another person that's intended to, or a backhanded slap towards you that's intended to insult you. In other words, Jesus is saying, be willing to endure repeated insults or wrongs and don't retaliate. It's God's job, not ours. We're to give up our right to retaliation. As I said at the start, though, this is hard. For we naturally think of our rights and we demand our rights. Still, God says, don't think of your rights. Follow Christ's example. However, what if you're experiencing persistent bullying at school? Abuse from a parent or a spouse or another. Jesus says, still, do not get revenge, do not retaliate, do not get even, don't hit back. Flee where you can. Seek help. And as John MacArthur, the writer, says, to report a crime is an act of compassion, righteousness, and godly obedience, where you seek the offender's good and repentance, to belittle, excuse, or hide the wrongdoing of others is not an act of love, but wickedness. And if we are witnessing and such an attack, Jesus is not commanding that we don't protect or arrest a third party. I am not to attack an evil person attacking me. Though out of love for my neighbour, we can argue that it is loving to resist and stop an evil person attacking someone else. Jesus is not forbidding us, protecting our families, our friends or our country. And didn't Jesus resist the evil people who were profaning God's temple? The principle is don't retaliate out of vengeance. Respond with love. The final three examples all fall under the third section, giving. Verse 40 <coughs> concerns a lawsuit where a person's, another person's wanting to take their clothes. They're likely to lose their clothes in the suit, I mean. And Jesus says, if you're sued for your shirt, give them your coat as well. And please know that most people back then only had one coat. 
and one or two shirts. Exodus 22 says the poorest person had the right to keep their cloak. Yet Jesus radically says, voluntarily surrender it. Wow. The principle is, even those things that we regard as our rights by law, we must be willing to voluntarily abandon. It's not about our rights. It's about seeking the good of the other person first. And this is not easy. But by the grace of God, this radical generosity is possible and can be shown. And then we see giving is the call in verse 41. This refers to the the Roman soldier who's commandeering civilians to, say, carry his bags or be his guide. And Jesus is saying, my followers should not feel hard done by in that. We shouldn't get angry, but we should be willing to double the distance, accept the imposition, even cheerfully. When we are robbed of some freedom, we're to surrender even more rather than retaliate. And then in verse 42, Jesus says, Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This demands giving and lending that is cheerful, that is willing. The trouble is that we dislike giving up things which belong to us. We think of our money as ours, mine. Even as Christians, we can forget that all we have has been given by God and we are stewards of it only. So even the rights to use our own money as we wish should be placed on the altar of obedience to Christ. Does this mean that we have to give to every freeloader or beggar on the street who holds out their hand to us? Is our Christian responsibility to give to the professional beggar or to pay for the drug that is ruining another person? I don't think so. One Cambridge University student literally went bankrupt, even going without food to provide, by default, in the end, alcohol to six men who would have been better off without it. Eventually he was helped to see that his actions were not helping the men or himself and they were neither honouring Jesus nor his teaching. All of us would live in destitution if we gave to every beggar God also commands us to provide for ourselves and our families, for our relatives, for the church, for the gospel. But we are also to provide for the poor. Don Carson says when he studied at Cambridge in England, many beggars preyed on students and many just used students, especially the soft-hearted ones. Carson says, several times when I approach, was approached for money, uh, for food or shelter, I have offered a meal, I've offered my time to find lodging and the like. But when I would not simply give money, my offers were often spurned, spurned. The money was allegedly to buy food or provide shelter, but in too many cases it was spent on drink. So maybe you could offer a homeless person on the street breakfast at Macca's. 
piece of fruit or your lunch from your bag. Or maybe you could support a ministry, serve in a ministry that helps them long term and with real change. However we respond, please don't leave this morning making excuses. Let verse 42 challenge you. And don't begrudgingly give in to pleas for help, but display a willing and generous desire to help others. So what might you do practically in response to Jesus' teaching? Maybe even to give to someone who could never pay you back or who does not deserve it. Generous love. Verses 39 to 42 are not to be taken with wooden literalism. They are illustrations of a principle. They are not a warrant for abuse by any tyrant, beggar or thug. They illustrate what it is to reject revenge and to love instead, seeking the highest good of the other person. Therefore, personal sacrifice displaces personal retaliation. For this is the way that Christ went. It's the way of the cross, the way that we're all called to walk. It was said of Martin Luther King Jr. at his funeral, If any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. House, bombs, living day by day for 13 years under threats of death, maliciously accused of being a communist, accused of being insincere, stabbed by a member of his own race, punched in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, deeply hurt because his friends betrayed him. And yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no anger in his soul, no revenge in his mind. And he went up and down the length and breadth of the world, preaching non-violence and the redemptive power of love, indeed the love of God, And one of his most moving sermons was written on our passage from jail. May that encourage us. But even more so, may the example and love of Christ encourage us. He's the greatest example of love, isn't he? And our lives have been changed by his love. So because God loves you, because Christ died for you, Love others generously, even your enemies. And may you and I leave this morning, I hope we will leave this morning saying, by the strength of Christ in me, I will love. Let's pray. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, please forgive us for our lovelessness, too often our selfishness. Help us to never think that we can earn acceptance into your family by our goodness or our loving actions. But move us, Lord, to cling to Christ in faith, to cry out for your grace, to change us from the inside out. And Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, by the strength of Christ in us, that we would. 
So Lord, we pray that you would move us to look again to Christ, look again to the cross of our Lord Jesus, and that you might inspire us and fill us with the strength and the will that we need to love not only our neighbour, but our enemy, those who are hard to love. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. May it be for the glory of your name. Amen.